Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 14. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, Jeremiah Crichton. I'm Kay here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Jeremiah Crichton. After John gets into a fight with everyone on Moya, he goes for a quick drive to relieve some of his stress. Unfortunately, his abrupt exit causes Moya to do an emergency starburst, and he gets lost. He spends the next quarter of a cycle hopping from planet to planet, eventually finding a small fishing village that he can call home. Meanwhile, the crew has been searching for him, and when they find him, are forced to deal with a Hynerian mystery on the peaceful planet. Wow, your, your episode summary sounds like it's so much more interesting than it really was. Oh God, this episode is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Jeremiah Crichton is considered to be pretty much the worst episode of Farscape ever. Um, and watching it again, I will say it wasn't as bad as I remember, but it's still pretty much a hot mess of an episode. And... There's like three major things going. They try to make all these twists happen and nothing ties together. And there's, it could have been interesting, I guess, but it's just not, it's just completely boring. Yeah. I think we are right that this is an episode that could have been interesting because to me, the idea of John Crichton being lost and him having to go planet hopping and him having to try and find a new home without the support structure of Moya, I find that incredibly interesting. I think that could have been an entire season of Farscape is, you know, John becoming a different John just because he's ground down by having to deal with this new world without Aaron and without Dargo. And this is what the episode does. <laughs> the episode <laughs> begins with John fighting with everyone for really no apparent reason. Like, apparently he's, he's just getting a little bit, I don't know, cabin. He's crabby. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's maybe getting like a little bit, what's that? What's it called? Like cabin fever? Yeah. He's getting yeah. a little bit like of cabin fever. And then he like blasts out and he's like, I'm going for a drive. And then like his, they're like, oh, well, all that exhaust caused Moya to do an emergency starburst. And so... They leave, and then literally they, they do the intro. After the intro, they've already found him again. Yeah. That's and, it. And not just that, but, but John is on a beach, and he's already met people and gone through this whole first contact situation, which could have been really interesting. They could have made the episode about that. It's just, and he has this god-awful beard. Can I just mention the beard? The beard sucks. I'm sorry, Ben Browder. Your beard sucks. <laughs> oh my gosh okay but so I actually looked this up because I was gonna ask you but then I thought maybe Taz doesn't know and that would be really embarrassing if our own podcast we don't know the answer to this question but for years I've been trying to figure out why the episode was called Jeremiah Crichton because I first I thought <laughs> maybe it's a reference to the prophet Jeremiah but then I looked up his story and it has nothing to no. do with this episode it turns out it's based on this old western that Ben Browder likes called <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson <laughs> which is about like some cowboy that goes off and becomes a mountain man with a terrible beard. Yeah, and actually I think it's uh, Robert Redford in the movie. We watched this in seventh grade uh, geography class for some reason. It was a movie we actually watched in school. I don't remember the movie at all. <laughs> but, yeah. I looked up the plot. It was so complicated that I didn't even finish reading it. I was like, okay, so I get it. It was like supposed to be 
you know, an homage. And it just turned into a really awful episode. Yeah, it's not even about survival. I mean, he ends up in a love triangle of all things, first off the bat, which, you know, love. there's love triangles that work and love triangles that don't. And even though I really generally hate them on principle, this one really doesn't work because one, so the brand new character we've ne- never met before, the male rival is a new brand new character we've never met before who is a stereotype down to the nth degree. And then John is not even interested in the girl. So it's like, why is this even a thing? And I know random plot reasons, it actually helps that there's this love triangle because then they can get, what's his name, Rokan? Yeah, Rokan. Attack John and cause drama. But it's just like, are you kidding me? I'm not invested in any of these characters. I mean, even John and his beard, the beard is a new character, by the way. (laughs) He's not even into it at all. He's like sequestered himself from the people that he's met. He's living on the beach fishing i'm sure he's had a very nice you know r&r there but you know where was the story of him meeting them where is that first contact and it's i don't know it just jumping into it after three months just did not work at all yeah i mean i think the other character that we've seen john have chemistry with is jelena and pk tech girl and i'm like in that episode they actually did make a really effective love triangle with a character that we met in one episode so i mean it can be done you can make an effective love triangle in 40 minutes and here they just didn't like it's it literally starts off with like this girl showing up and being like I made you a star map and John like kind of is like here have some food and she's like "Ooh, food means you like me and he's like okay also she looks like she's like (laughs) 17 or 18 years old like she's really young too yeah and not that that's necessarily a bad thing but it's just I feel like that's what's running through John's head is that she's a really young kid and he is not going to hit on her because that would be inappropriate. That's kind of the vibe I was getting. (laughs) Yeah, it really would be inappropriate. And I think he that is the correct vibe that you got. (laughs) Like he was definitely kind of like, okay, because even he tells her dad, he's like, yeah, she's a kid. I'm not super into her. And the dad's like, whatever. In our society, the women choose the mate. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and the other thing about the situation is it really reminded me of Disney's Pocahontas. Yeah. Because it's it's the she's the chieftain's daughter, the guy in her village who likes her is like the best hunter, and here's John as the newcomer that she's interested in cuz he's different. Fortunately, they did not start a whole war between it because by the time we can kind of even start getting the love triangle plot moving along, the whole plot of the episode changes. Yeah. So John's been on this planet doing all sorts of adventures that we don't get to see, fishing with his beard. And meanwhile, Dargo, Zan, Aaron, Pilot, and Moya, and Rigel have all been searching for him because they feel really bad that they starburst away. And this is one of the scenes that I actually really liked of the episode is when, when they're talking about looking for John. They've been looking for him for a quarter of a cycle, which is about three months, and they're starting to get tired of it. And Zan especially is starting to get tired of it. And it's an interesting reversal of, of who you would expect to be interested in going after and looking for John after they've abandoned him. So we did pull a quote about that scene, which I'm going to play right now. Dargo, we have to admit to ourselves, whatever happened to John is his own doing. He shouldn't have left Moe in the time of crisis. We drove him to it. All of us. You've become so cold. Cold, perhaps, but also practical. We all grow weary of this search, and it places us in greater danger of being discovered by the peacekeepers. I still care about Crichton. 
The only reason this search still drags on is because of the guilt in your own hearts. My hearts are private places. Stay out of them. Aaron, you have a voice in this too. Fine, I say we keep looking. For now. You know, Dargo, there will come a time where we may have to acknowledge that Crichton has met his destiny and we are just not part of it. Then I will wait for you to tell me when to abandon the search. When we abandon Crichton. Yeah. I have to ask, why do you think that Dargo is so into looking for John, given that his assertion that we all drove him to it isn't actually true? Like, John literally threw a giant tantrum, and I have to describe the intro. John and Dargo are doing some sort of cleaning of Moya's systems, and everybody's like, it's because you were burning that fossil fuel pod of yours, and now all of her systems are all clogged. And so they're doing, they're cleaning it, and Dargo mentions something, and John essentially is like, yeah, well, now I'm all out of fuel, and I have to go use your technology now. And he's, like, throwing this big tantrum. And then as he's leaving, Aaron is like, hey, what's going on? You okay? And he's like, I don't even want to talk to you either. And then he, like, runs into Zan, and she's like, oh, are you okay? And he's like, no, I'm leaving. I'm going for a drive. And it's, so, I mean, <laughs> being like they all drove him to it is a... A real misreading of what happened. So I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak up in John's defense here. He does have a moment with Aaron where she's like, "What, what are your human problems now?" And it's just like that little dig about it being a human problem and therefore unimportant. And that's kind of the sense you get. I get, or the sense I get that what he's complaining of, yeah, is completely ridiculous and stupid, and he feels piled upon of like not really a whole lot of big deal stuff. But at the same time, this is the accumulation of months and months and months of these little jabs at him. And this is just the straw that broke the camel's back. That's why he kind of loses it and just has to get out of there. So, yes, this one incident, not really provoked, but it's the compilation of all these incidents and all these little, these little microaggressions that he's had to deal with up until now. Okay, but so that still begs the question of why Dargo is the one that's speaking up for him. Yeah, so that's a good point. Yeah, I actually don't know why. I think maybe it's because Dargo was the one with him when he was in the tunnel and was like the last straw that made him storm out. Hmm. And maybe Dargo took that personally. And now that they are quote unquote allies, they're not friends. Don't ever mistake them for friends yet. But he feels somewhat responsible for pushing him that last little bit or okay. something. I don't know. I don't know. I could also see Dargo as being, he's such an honorable character in that honor is very important to him and camaraderie is very important to him, that he wouldn't want to leave anyone behind, mm -hmm. whether or not he cares for them deeply. Yeah. I mean, I guess because even in, even in The Blood Runs Clear, Dargo goes down to the planet to forcibly bring them back. He yeah. isn't like, okay, whatever, they're down on the planet, let's just abandon them, let's go. He's literally like, I'm going to go down <laughs> get them whether or not they like it and then we're gonna go so i guess it yeah. does make sense but zan man oh, burn girl yeah. that is frigid yeah and sh and she is like the last person you would expect and it's definitely definitely a carryover from her abandoning the seek and like she is she's done with everything and i think there's there's like an exhaustion to her that i think is related to that yeah i guess exhaustion mm. 
Yeah, I guess I'd go with exhaustion. But this is this this is the second episode where they kind of use Zan and Aaron as like set pieces, where they're essentially using them because there are no other characters to use. This is not yet a large enough cast where they can have people actually acting because of who they are as characters they're still kind of like okay well we have Dargo doing this we have John doing this we have Rigel doing this so that leaves us with Zan and Aaron and we need one of them to be you know for leaving John behind and one of them to be against leaving John behind Eh, it can't let's let's go with Zan do you know what I mean that's kind of what it felt like to me yeah yeah oh I could definitely see that I that's actually I hadn't thought of it that way I'm glad you pointed that out because that makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, and I'm not saying that it's not true, because actually there is a quote later where I think they try and explain it by having Aaron and Zan have a few conversations together. In both of them, Aaron is calling Zan on being so different. And it's, it's a little awkward. So let's listen to that. <laughs> you were a lot more agreeable as a peace-loving priest. As I assume were you as a peacekeeper pilot. I didn't give up my calling. You did. My personal decision to put aside the spiritual seek is none of your business. I warn you fairly, Aaron. Do not go there. Is that a threat? I will only tell you once. There are lines that we should never cross. What I like about that is that we've kind of been having this back and forth about the Watsonian, which is the in-universe reasons and the Doyleist, which is the out-of-universe reasons for doing things, and having Zan be the argument against. And I like it because it gives Zan a reason in-universe, the Watsonian reason, to say we shouldn't go back for John, or to be against it, or to be resistant to it, or at least bringing up all the devil's advocate's reasons why they shouldn't go or, or whatnot. Because she has had this experience where she has lost her faith, she has had the core of her being shaken, like she doesn't know if she's a good person anymore, and all of those reasons. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I like about these two scenes that we get to see in this side of Zan, whether or not she really is for a set piece, which I think you're right about that, because there literally is no one else. But I like that they try to give her a reason. Mm -hmm. And it is a valid reason, because I think that in Rhapsody in Blue, she literally had her faith torn out of her. She essentially was brain raped and Mm -hmm. you know and I and I don't really use that word lightly but I mean I'm not sure what other imagery we're supposed to get from a character going inside your head and taking something that you didn't freely give yeah so yeah I mean I get it it's just kind of it's not really the Zan we like right it's not really the Zan we like and I would also say that that the other part of this and this is why this episode fails is those are the only two scenes we really get from it and mm-hmm. we never get this resolution of Crichton left, he was angry, and we never get the resolution of him coming back to the ship and then talking about it and apologizing and figuring out what went wrong. I mean, it made me think of, of Buffy, ep- the Buffy episodes. The She runs away at the end of season two. Sorry, mm-hmm. spoilers for Buffy. Um, she runs away at the end of season two, and then the first episode of season three is all about her coming back. And that's what we don't get in this episode that really kind of, I don't know, calls for it in a lot of ways. Because mm-hmm. John feels abandoned because he thinks they left him deliberately. And they feel like they're searching for nothing. Is it really worth all this time and risk that they're taking on by going back into the Peacekeeper search area? Or closer to the Peacekeeper search area? 
And so there are these all these conflicting emotions that never get resolved. And I think that's another one of the major flaws of this episode, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, um, comparing it to that Buffy episode. Because there have been... There have been a few, actually, Buffy does this pretty well because, you know, Buffy runs away. Angel kind of did this, a similar thing in Angel. Um, I want to say it was like end of season two or something like that, where he goes off with Darla and he essentially fires everybody. And then the beginning part of the season, is it, is it season two or season three? I think it's the end of season three because there's chunks of Angel I actually haven't seen because I was abroad. Oh. So... I never caught up on some of it. <laughs> well, don't worry. It's not super worth it. I'll be honest. <laughs> Cordelia gets a haircut. It's very ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody wishes she had never cut her hair. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. So. But yeah, we don't get that resolution. In fact, the episode ends with literally John being like, well, I guess I'm going to have to make a lot of apologies. And then that's it. That's the end of the episode. And they all walk. They don't even walk off into the sunset. It's literally just like end it ends on the planet so while Aaron and Zan are having their conversation up in the maintenance bay Dargo and Rigel have gone down to the planet in a transport pod because they've spotted the module and they're going to go find John and here we get the introduction of plot number three that is the one I think that's the best developed of all of them kind of Mm -hmm. where Dargo is a strange scary alien who gets to defend John when his love triangle rival Rokon attacks John and tries to kill him so now there's a scary alien, and then there is Rigel, our nice, cute, little, adorable Rigel, who it turns out they think is a god in our nice, non-technological society. So that happens. <laughs> what else to say about that? I mean, it's a classic trope, right? It's like stranger walks into the village and thing is thought to be a god. It's, it's the whole colonialism. And it's also, it feels very Stargate SG-1 or SGA. Yeah. You know, where you've got like, oop, strangers come in and they're gods. And, you know, the poor little villagers are worshiping them like gods. And you're right that this feels like Pocahontas. So the C plot in this episode, which becomes a plot, is that yeah. they come <laughs> in. So it's so awful. <laughs> so John is like in this love triangle with the best warrior who is the son of the high priestess. And right. In this religion, they worship their god, and they have this belief that their god will eventually come back, that there will be a resurrection, and the god will lift them up, okay? Into the light. Into the light. So after Jargo defends John from a murder attempt, which... Uh, whatever. Anyway, so John, de- <laughs> so Darko defends John from a murder attempt, and then and John's um, super pouty about it. Yeah, and then they go and they like ransack John's camp, and they accidentally take Rigel with them because Rigel's hiding in a sack. Yeah, Rigel hiding in a potato sack or something. So <laughs> while they're like interrogating John, and he's like. Dargo was just defending me. And the king is like, well, there's this rule that you can't ever touch my guard. And I'm like, well, that's a ridiculous rule. That's very silly. And then he's like, (laughs) so I'm going to banish you to hard labor forever. And then Rigel appears and everybody's like, oh, you're our god. And they worship him. And then Rigel figures out that there is a book that explains what he's supposed to do. And it turns out that he's supposed to lift them up. And I want to, I want to play a quote where Rigel is reading the ancient texts and he figures out exactly why they believe he's a god. Rigel, you better find something we can use. 
The ancestors of these people, these Aquarans, they were colonists sent out from my empire during the reign of Rigel X. They were meant to expand the influence of my people's monarchy, and they were... They were abandoned. Rigel X sent them here, then he... Rigel? What? Whatever's causing the power drain across the planet, it's intentional. There's some sort of device sent by my empire that purposely keeps these people on this planet so that they can't travel, can't learn of other cultures, can't be anything other than the blind followers of the family of Rigel. What's this about you being some kind of a Masada? A lot of this is new. The Priestons have made it up, elevated my ancestors and me to gods to elevate themselves. But I must tell them, explain. I'm Rigel the 16th. They must listen. Rigel, look at them out there. They aren't preparing for the return of a worldly king. They're preparing for the return of their savior. Then we are friend. I love Rigel at the end there. Okay, so then <laughs> he... I think this is the first time that we've had Rigel admit that his people can do wrong that his ancestors have done wrong. Yeah, and it, it's actually, Rigel almost gets the best story in this entire episode. You know, he actually has this little arc. It's not not huge, but realizing that his past rulers have done wrong to these people, which this is another one of those things I think is really weak writing. It's like, what did they do wrong? And why did Rigel the Tenth want to keep them subjugated and in, you know, technological black hole, basically? I mean, were like they prisoners or something? And then abandoned them? I think Rigel the Tenth, because remember, Hynerians live longer than even Sebations. So clearly he had these weird Sebation slaves. Let's just call them yeah. Sebations, because we don't know what species they are, but they look Sebation. So he had these Sebations, and he wanted them gone long enough and without technology that the only thing they would know is to worship Hynerians, and specifically the Hynerian Emperor, you know, Dominar, like a god. So let's yeah. imagine that Rigel X puts him there. He knows Sebations only live about 100 years. He comes back 300 years later, three generations later. He shows up like a god, picks them all up, and now he has an entire village, like a couple hundred people, that will serve him like he is a god because he will have literally lifted them out of blackness. Interesting. Okay, now here's a world-building point that, I, that now that has sparked. Is this how... The Dominars of Hyneria and the Hynerians, who are Rigel's tiny, like they're not like physically dominant at all. Is this how they conquered 600 billion people? I mean, I would believe it. The idea that there are 600 billion Hynerians running around has never made any sort of world building sense to me. And Rigel always says subjects. He doesn't say Hynerians. He says subjects, which could mean that they have other species under their thumb. I mean, I would imagine it is, because if even if you look at a nation on Earth, I mean, we don't have different species, but we have a lot of different cultures. For example, in America, which is one of the, you know, larger countries in the world, I mean, not by size, but by people, there are a lot of different cultures in America, even in Canada, which is a physically large country. You ha you're going to have like lots of different cultures. So let's just let's remap that onto a universe. If you have that many subjects, they're likely not all going to be the same species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And even the peacekeepers, like when they they subjugate people, they're not always sedation. Yeah. 
That's true. That's definitely true. Well, that's actually interesting. So look, Jeremiah Crichton gave us some interesting world building meta. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so Rigel's treated like a god. So Rigel has figured out that essentially because these people were left too long in the dark and nobody ever came back for them, that they have uh, that the priests have tried to gain more power by rewriting the ancient holy book, which is written in ancient Hynerian. And so he tries, <laughs> he tries to tell them that he is not an actual god and he is in fact a dominar, and it doesn't go very well. <laughs> it's reminded me of like any pirate movie where there's natives on the Caribbean islands and they're going to eat the person that they were just proclaiming as their god. So it's uncomfortable on a couple of levels because now I want to talk about, we just talked about how there was some interesting world building in the possibility yeah. <laughs> of Rigel the 10th leaving these people. Now I want to talk about the really unfortunate, <laughs> the really unfortunate optics of this episode, which yeah. are that this is a Polynesian slash African culture. And there are essentially two races. There are Asians and there are black people. And there, this are, is... there are also white people in the background. I just do want to point that out. Okay. But, but they don't have speaking roles. They don't have speaking roles. And I'll be honest, they were brown-faced. Yes. They are very clearly wearing like Polynesian or yeah. African-styled outfits. So let's call that very brown-faced. Anyway, so the unfortunate optics of this episode are the first black people <laughs> that Farscape has ever shown, the first Sebastian looking, the first... Let, let's be honest, the first black people that Farscape has yeah. are evil. And not just like a little bit evil, but like Lady Macbeth bathing in baby's blood evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very stereotypical. It's the conniving mother who wants to have her son marry the chieftain's daughter for political reasons. And he follows her orders and tries to kill people and is the villain, and she is also the, the other villain, the, the Machiavellian villain in the background. It's part of the whole, all the whole stereotypes of the culture, and, you know, you've seen it a hundred times in, in all sorts of different, different mediums, and it's, it's tired. Why are we still doing this? I mean, that's the question. Why, is, why does that have to come up again? Yeah, she wants her son to kill Crichton, and that's the plot that, you know, Dargo fights them off is, you know, he literally comes right. in and he's going to murder Crichton in cold blood. And, and then it turns out that she's fully aware that Rigel is not a god and she wants to murder him also. And she wants to keep her own power. And <sighs> that's my reaction. It's very boring because you've seen it before and it's the same tropes. It's the same stereotypes. It's the same not great stereotypes. It's the primitive society that has all these rituals and they don't listen to reason. And it's this, the technology versus non-technology and who gets that. And yeah, it's just, as we said, kind of boring and put into a plot that doesn't do anything with it. There's no peeling back the layers. There's no trope inversion or any of the things that Farscape episodes sometimes try to do and I think that's why another reason why it's one of the weakest episodes and that you have in Farscape like I was rolling my eyes and covering my eyes for half of it because I'm like no don't do that and then they did yeah. it <laughs> everything that the Tumblr side of fandom is really interrogating in terms of media that we consume this episode does 
you know, it just does it. And it plays it straight. And the other weird thing is I'm like, okay, so they've been on this planet for like 10 generations or something like, we're more than that. They've been on this planet for a really long time. And yet you still have distinctly black and distinctly Asian people. And I couldn't figure it out because I'm like, at a certain point, everybody would just become really mixed race. You would yeah. no longer have somebody that looks very, very black and somebody that looks very, very Asian. And it was kind of weird. <laughs> well, I, was I like, mean, that's a product of it being a television show, too. I mean, they're not going to be able to cast that for the entire population. They're just not. I mean, I understand that, but I'm like, then just make everybody Asian. Or just make everybody black. Because I think that that would have taken away a lot of the weird optics that this episode has. Like, if everybody was Afri- if everybody looked black, then you wouldn't have the optics of the only black characters so far on Farscape being evil. And you mm-hmm. wouldn't have the optics of the ancient, wise, Asian guy. Do you know what yeah, I mean? who's the chieftain of the village, yeah. I mean, yay for Farscape for casting brown people but thanks for doing it (laughs) where it's like the worst episode thanks for that (laughs) yeah not even well written yeah I don't know anyway but so the puppetry is here really good love Rigel let's talk about Rigel again because Rigel's awesome in this episode (laughs) yeah he really is I just want to go back to Rigel for a second before before we move on because one thing that you don't necessarily expect from Rigel in this episode is he is the one who's saying I don't want to be called a god by these people. I want to be recognized as their mortal ruler. And he's like, we have to tell them that we are not gods. And I just think it's interesting because he's always portrayed as wanting the power and the acclaim and the glory and all that is given as his due. But he wants it as his due as a ruler. And he doesn't want to be elevated above that. He wants to be acknowledged for who he is. And he doesn't aspire to to be all powerful. And I, I think that's a very nice character note for Rigel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's actually, we have a quote about that. Let's play it. All right, so this is from the end when they have figured out how to make the prophecy come true. And here's what Rigel has to say. No, cease, I command it. I have not risen. I am not a deity. I am but a worthy being like yourselves. But I am your sovereign. He is their sovereign, and that's who he wants to be. He doesn't want to be their god. Mm-hmm. Rigel defines himself by being a ruler, and he knows he's not a god. He's, you know, he understands that. <laughs> but and so to have somebody worshiping as him as a god means that they are not acknowledging his mortal awesomeness. Pretty much. That's that's my take on it, too. And I also think he's a good enough ruler to realize how bad it is to mess with religion. Yeah. One of the things he's when he's getting the ancient text, he's talking with the priest and and he asks, oh, I need to fulfill my part in the prophecy. And and in order to do that, I need your sacred text. And she says the Timbala, which is their text. He's like, yes, the Timbala. And afterwards, Dargo is asking, how would you know that they had a sacred text? And he's like, are you an idiot? Every religion has one. And so there's this awareness about the power of religion and how it functions. And I think that's part of his wisdom as a ruler is knowing when to mess with things and when not to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't completely work here, but as we've mentioned, that's, that's part of the conflict of this episode because it's the priestens who have altered the, altered the history mm-hmm. that he's fighting, trying to fight against because he believes it's the right thing to do. Yeah. 
It's interesting because there's this, um, the foundation, the first foundation book by Isaac Asimov. I, I hated it. I really didn't like it. It was a very bad book. Sorry <laughs> if any of you liked it. <laughs> I never it. read it. It's so bad. Don't ever read it. It's, you would just okay. hate it. But one of the things they talk about is how the society survives when it's like a very weak society. And one of the ways is they, after they have um, atomic power, nuclear power, they, they essentially make a religion around their society so that everybody else in the system believes that they hold the power essentially of the gods. And that's one way that they control populations that are stronger than them is through religion. So I think it's interesting here that Rigel realizes that that's that portraying himself as a god has just enough danger in it to not be worth it. And also mm-hmm. that it's it's demeaning to him because it it undermines his actual abilities by yeah. making them mystical. Yeah. So um, on White Shirt Watch, I'm sorry, dear White Shirt friends, but we have some bad news. I think this is the end of the White Shirt. I think it is. So John, as we open on the episode, when we come to see him, he puts he's shirtless to start with, but when he puts the shirt on, the sleeves are cut off, and it is grimy and grubby because I think it's the only shirt he's had for the last three months. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we ever see it again because it has sleeves cut off. Yeah. I mean, if we do, then we can acknowledge that maybe John had another white shirt on his pod. <laughs> Whatever. But we'll we'll keep an eye out for what he wears in the future. He also has destroyed his khaki cargo pants. He's cut them yes. off at the knees and made them shorts. Yes. And he does still have his, his khaki jacket, but it was being used as a pillow. So that may return, but I don't I don't know if it does. We'll have to see. But yeah, the white outfit, done. White shirt is gone. <laughs> Let's have a moment of silence for the white shirt. Okay, moment done. <laughs> <laughs> he also at, at one point wears like the orange purple outfit that or the orange purple like vest that the yeah. natives wear. As a gift from them, probably. Yeah. When he goes to see the the chief. All right. So how would you have made this episode better? How would I have made this episode better? So many ways. I wouldn't have made this episode in the first place. Number one, because I think that this isn't a one episode arc. It's a three or four episode arc. First episode, it shows why John left in the first place. Second episode, we see him being beaten down by having to go from place to place to place to try and find somewhere to find home. Third episode, reunion. Yeah. I mean, honestly... I would have been much happier if they had had delved into the relationships of the crew and him coming back and made it about that as opposed to the random culture on the ground that we see instead. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, there's this episode of, um, I can't remember if it's Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. It was probably Next Generation because I don't think I watched Deep Space Nine where O'Brien gets put in prison, but it's not a real prison. It's a prison in his mind. Do you remember that one? Mm, No. I'm thinking of the one where Picard ends up kind of in a prison in his mind, except he's part of a culture. Mm, No, no, no. This is, yeah, I I know the one you're talking about. But this one is, so O'Brien does something by some other culture, and they don't imprison people. They just put them through, like, a mental prison. And, like, Mm -hmm. two hours later, it's like you've been in prison for ten years, but you're, you know, you. He goes through like this whole prison experience and then he comes back two hours later and he and his and he and Kiko are like trying to work things out, but he's just such a different person. And there's like a portion of the episode that just deals with him being different. 
Do you know what I mean? Where he like sleeps on the ground of their, of their room because he's not used to the bed anymore and that sort of thing. And I'm like, that would have been interesting. That's what we needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we needed in this episode. Definitely. All right. What would you give this episode? Um, a one. (laughs) It's just, it's just all over the place. I can't help it. Okay. I, I'm not giving it a zero. Like I thought I would like the, I think the Rigel arc and Rigel's attitude and just the puppetry in general kind of redeems it a little bit. So it's not a zero, but it's a one because I hate the beard. I hate the love triangle. The three arcs are so shoddily done. Aaron and Zan barely get anything to do. And did I mention I hate the beard? (laughs) All right, I'll go with you for a one. Yeah, because the Rigel thing was interesting. This is the first time we've seen him admit his people can do wrong. This is the first time he's tried to do better than his ancestors, you know? No, I'll give it a one. So... Yeah, Jeremiah Crichton, it's the least favorite episode in fandom, and there's a reason for it. <laughs> was it worse, though, than Back to Back to Back to the Future? See, that was what I was wondering. I think Back and Back and Back to the Future, the sexual misogyny and the characterization of Masala actually pissed me off more. But I say that as a woman, whereas if I was, you know, I don't know how the cultural politics or optics would have affected me if I was part of a minority culture so that said that one pissed me off more in some ways but it was better as an overall episode arc like the episode actually held together overall whereas this one just fell apart Hmm. I think the reason we dislike both of them so much is because of the different issues they have with race and gender respectively yeah I think that it's possible to like bad episodes of tv when there's something in them that doesn't kind of get in your stomach. Do you know what I mean? And like make mm-hmm. you feel sick. Yeah. Um, and the, and both of these episodes just had something that was not really not good. You know, I would also point out that we already talked briefly about PK tech girl having a love triangle, both back and back and back to the future. And this one also have love triangles where they are not done very well. Yeah. So, I mean, ironically though, back and back and back to the future did have a better love triangle than this one. It made yeah. more sense to me because it had two characters we already knew and because it made sense why Dargo was super into her. Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And whereas this one is like two interested parties and one non-interested party and the only one that we cared about was the non-interested party. Yeah. Which is John. So. All right. Next week, we will be looking at a much, much, much better episode. Durka Returns. I'm so excited. I know. That's all I'm going to say. I'm so excited. Yeah. If you've watched Farscape before, you will join us in being super excited. If you haven't watched Farscape before, our lips are sealed, but it's, it's really, a really good. really good episode. If you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. If you'd like to join in conversation with us, we're on Tumblr and Dreamwidth, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.